Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learning so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. And today's guest is Jack Nicklaus, who is widely regarded as the best golfer to ever play the game. I mean, does this man even need an introduction? Of course not. He won 117 professional tournaments over his 44-year career, and that includes six wins at the Masters, five PGA Championships, four U.S. Open titles, and three British Open titles. Good grief, this guy is on another planet. But his legendary status doesn't stop with his playing career. He's gone on to design world-renowned courses and build a fantastic brand. He and his wife, Barbara, have done just a tremendous amount of philanthropic work for children's health. And he has such a humble attitude through it all, in spite of all the success he has. There are about a zillion things that Jack can teach us about leadership. But one thing that really strikes me, and one thing that you're really going to learn that's very important, is how he's just as eager to learn from his wins as he is from his losses. Now, we all know, and someone said this, someone brilliant, I wish it would have been me, failure is a great teacher, but success can be too. When we have a winning moment, we don't want to just high-five each other and move on. It's important to understand why it worked so that we can do more of it. And you're about to learn how now from a guy who's done a ton of it. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Jack Nicholas. I can't wait to, to get your, your insights, Jack, on leadership. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure, David. You know, Jack, I always like to start at the beginning. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. Well, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My dad is a pharmacist, uh, and he had a drugstore on the Ohio State University campus. Uh, so I grew up uh, on the campus. Uh, for the, my first uh, nine years, and my dad uh, broke his ankle, uh, and he had three operations on it, and they finally ended up fusing his ankle, and the doctor told him, he said, Charlie, he says, you need to take up something where you're going to walk, otherwise you're going to, you know, end up in a wheelchair, and so he'd, he had played golf as a kid, but hadn't played for probably 15, 20 years, and he said, so he decided to take up golf, and we moved out to a suburb called Upper Arlington, and he opened a drugstore out in Upper Arlington, and uh, we joined Scioto Country Club, and uh, he couldn't make a game with anybody because he couldn't walk, so he took me along. I carried the bag, and I was 10 years old at the time, and he, uh, he would play one hole, and I would sort of chip around and fool around, and he finally said to me, he says, would you like to learn how to play this game? Well, my dad told me to ask about, about every, every sport. My dad played played professional football. He was a football, basketball, baseball player at Ohio State. Wow. And he was, he was a city tennis champion. So he was a good athlete. And so he introduced me to everything. And Chris golf was just another sport that he introduced me to. And it so happened that that year was 1950. And I said I was 10 years old. It was happened to be the first year that Jack Grout came to Scioto. And Grout had been a, a, a assistant pro at Glen Garden in Fort Worth where Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson grew up as young boys. And also, that was the same year that the PGA Championship was held at Scioto. So I had a double whammy with Jack Grout and the PGA Championship all coming in my 10th year. And so I got me excited about playing the game of golf. Well, 
I played other sports and, and golf ended, ended up being my sport more by process of elimination. Uh, I was a pretty good football player and I played quarterback and linebacker, did all the punting and place kicking. And uh, uh, as I started into high school, I was still playing. I was playing national junior tournaments and national amateur. And I qualified for those and they start running a football season. And I think it broke my dad's heart, but he, uh, I, I quit football then. And mm-hmm. actually largely to a fellow named Woody Hayes. Woody was a customer at my dad's drugstore. And, and he came in the store and he, says, he said, he said, Woody, I want to ask you a question. He said, the co- football coach is all over Jack to play football at, at Upper Arlington. And he says, what do you think? He says, he says, Charlie, he says, I've seen your boy do lots of things. He's a good athlete. He says, he can do lots of things. He says, with the talent that he's got in golf, he says, you keep him as far away from my sport as you can. <laughs> <laughs> when you were a kid, I understand you worked at the pharmacy with your dad. I, I started you, working when I was 10 years old as a shop, yeah, shop boy. Tell me what you learned from that experience. I, I learned I didn't want to do it. <laughs> that was part was for sure. But I, I never liked the holidays, David. And the reason I didn't like the holidays is that Thanksgiving, Christmas, spring, bake, and summers, yeah. I was in the drugstore working because that was my dad's busiest times. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, so I started in there when I was 10 years old. I became an apprentice pharmacist at about 15 years old. I went to college to become a pharmacist. Now, did you go to, did you want to be a pharmacist to follow in your dad's footsteps? I wanted to be a pharmacist because my dad was a pharmacist. And that's what most of my friends did in those days. We, you know, my dad was my best friend. He was my 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 idol, my my mentor. And, yeah. and if my dad, if that was good enough for my dad, it was good enough yeah, for me. Yeah. So so I went in, I went into Ohio State and I went through three years of pre-pharmacy. And I was getting ready to go into pharmacy school. And he said, Jack, why do you want to go to pharmacy? I said, because, Dad, you're a pharmacist. He says, he said, but you can't use your golf, you know, behind a counter. He said, you know, you need to go where you can actually use your golf, whether you play professionally or play as an amateur. You need to really use your golf. So I, I, I switched majors, went over to the business college, got in and became an insurance major, started selling insurance. Actually, I was the youngest Youngest person ever licensed in the state of Ohio to sell insurance on my 20th birthday. Were you a good salesperson? No. I mean, and I hated it because I, I'm here trying to sell life insurance to my fraternity brothers who needed it like a hole in the head. <laughs> I mean, it was, I did not like it at all. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a professional golfer? I love playing golf and I wanted to be the best I could be. Not necessarily, I never thought about being the best. I just right. thought to be the best I could be. And so uh, I said, you know, the only way I could do that is to play professionally. Mm. And so, because that, because the best players play that way, that's you, you got to play against the best if you want to be the best. And so, uh, that's what I did. And, I, and, and in the fall of, I mean, I was selling insurance back in 1961. I was making about thirty thousand dollars a year. That's a lot of money back that's then. That's a lot of money back in 1961. I don't know what that. But what did you make? Let's say in your first uh, professional golf tournament, well, you won uh, thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents. <laughs> <laughs> that insurance is looking pretty good. That I didn't win. No, but, but anyway, that year when I turned pro, I was interviewed, and they said, well, "What do you think will be a successful year for you?" I said, "Well, I think if I could make thirty thousand dollars, I'd have a pretty successful year." And of course. A lot of the older pros says, look at that young kid. He thinks he could make $30,000 out here. Well, I made about 100 and, I don't know, 100. I won, I won about 60-some 60, 60 wow. on the uh, regular tour, and I won some overseas. I won the that World Series amazing. of Golf, which was 50000 So I want to ask you something. And some thousand. But anyway, I, I exceeded my, yeah. uh, my, uh, uh, my goals. You know, I want to go back to your father for a second. Sure. Because you said that he was your, your best friend. And he really, obviously, he, he ran that pharmacy and did that well. Uh-huh. What did you learn from him just by, from the way how he did his job? Well, my dad, my dad never met a, met a stranger. 
He always had a smile on his face. He always took his hand out. He gave him a firm handshake, which he taught me. Uh, he was he played a lot of sports, so he, he taught me sportsmanship. And I watched I watched the way he handled himself, the way he was liked. Uh, everybody liked everybody liked Charlie. That was mm-hmm. that, that was his name. And mm-hmm. and and Charlie was just he was just he was just a good guy. And and he he never was a, that good a golfer. I mean he was uh, he got down to maybe a four, but he would never really. He, most of the time he's around a ten to twelve. Yeah. Which is still a pretty darn good player, yeah. but uh, uh, you know he just he loved to compete and he loved to be part of, but but he loved being part of what I was doing. Wow! And so it got when we were working in the pharmacy, and we got so we start to see right around when I was about thirteen years old, uh, he could see says you know he says let's sort of knock it off here. Let's go you and I go play nine holes of golf. And we start doing that, yeah. and I'll never forget the first time I broke seventy. I was thirteen. And we knocked it off at four o'clock and went went from the pharmacy uh, in the summertime. And we went over to the Scioto and I shot 35 the front nine. Wow. And my lowest score previously was 74. And I said, okay, dad, yeah, dad, I can break 74 today. So let's play the back. No, can't do that. He said, promise mom we'd be home for dinner. Oh, come on, dad. He says, no, no. I said, I'll tell you what, though. He says, if we rush home real quick, we may be able to come back here and get that back nine in. So we rushed home and grabbed dinner in about 30, about 30 seconds, you know. We rushed right back, and we got around to the 18th hole. And the 18th hole side was a par 5 in those days. And I hit a driver, and I don't know what I hit, but I hit, hit it on the green about 35 feet from the hole. And they had, in those days, they had the sprinkler hoses at the yeah. hose on the green. And, you, and we, so we pulled the hose back, and I had about a 35-foot putt as it was pitch dark, and I knocked it in the hole for an eagle and shot 69. <laughs> Good for you. And so, you know— my dad saw that, and he saw, and I qualified for the National Juniors that year. We went to, to uh, Southern Hills in Tulsa, and I went to the fourth round. And, uh, you know, he, he, he just saw some good things that was, were going on. And, and so my dad was, being an athlete, he pushed me in, in everything. He introduced me and, got, and, and encouraged me. But he also uh, wanted me to understand the value of a dollar. He wanted to understand the value of a work ethic. And so... He always had his nose to grindstone. He did his work, but he also, you know, when he when he got a chance to play, he went out and played. That's great. But uh, uh, my dad was always a, uh, uh, you know, as I say, he was a hardworking guy that uh, was from the Midwest. That uh, uh, he, he 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 was brought up. His father was a uh, uh, a boiler maker on the uh, on the uh, CNO Railroad, right. and when he was uh, probably I don't know, just a teenager, he had two other brothers and and. Uh, his father took him down to the, where he worked, which is probably 120, 30 degrees. He's making these boilers for the, for the engines. And he says, boys, I brought you down here because this is what I don't ever want to see you have to do. Wow, that's a great story. And my dad became a pharmacist. His younger brother became a pharmacist, and his older brother became a dentist. Well, you know, Jack, you're such an accomplished guy, and you're such a winner. You, you know, you won more majors than any with 18, and then a record six masters. Looking at your record, what really blows me away is that you finished second 19 times in the majors and third nine times. You were so consistent. What advice can you give to others on, on how, do you, how do you get so consistently excellent? Well, first of all, I think being prepared is probably the most important thing in any walk of life. I mean, you can't walk into a business meeting. You can't walk into anything or a salesman or anything if you're not prepared. Mm-hmm. And I prided myself on being prepared to play when I was ready to play, when to play. And so 
uh, as I went into each of those majors, I really geared myself early in the year for the masters. And I practiced on courses that I thought were courses that would help me for Augusta. And, and so when I got to Augusta, I was ready to play Augusta. And so being prepared, being ready, and being focused on, on, on those events were something that, that I really prided myself on. And, you know, if you're not prepared, you're not going to, you're not going to perform. And so, uh, I think my consistency came because of my desire to focus where I wanted to focus and where I thought was important. And I did that throughout my career. I always remember uh, where I learned a pretty darn good lesson. I think it was 1985. I was done playing most of my career. And uh, uh, we were playing at Oak Tree in, in, in uh, Oklahoma. And it really didn't suit my eye. I wasn't really working that hard at my golf game at that point in time. I was still, I was working for ABC doing television and played in the tournament and I, and I didn't prepare properly and I missed the cut. Now, the only thing worse than missing the cut is to have to stay around on the weekend and talk about everybody else playing in the tournament <laughs> while you're watching. And so anyway, as, as was fitting, I think on Friday night after I missed the cut, we went to McDonald's and of course, I, I, it's about all I was worth as a hamburger that, that, that <laughs> night. And Barbara that night, she went in and she, she saw a little cup that was uh, probably one of the sippy meals or sippy yeah. cup or whatever it was. And uh, the next morning, I had a cup of coffee sitting there. And in this little cup, it said, there is no excuse for not being properly prepared. <laughs> and I, so and I, I get Barbara credit for oh, your Oh, you get Barbara for a lot of that. And, and, you know, I looked at it and I said, you know, she's so right. Yeah. And, and it is so easy to be properly prepared. You look at guys that, that when, when they, you see basketball and football, you see these guys are not ready to play, and they, don't, they have bad games. You should never have a bad game. I mean, goodness, they're only playing a game one, a week apart usually. Yeah. And you should be prepared each week to, to be able to play in that game. Yeah. And uh, did I have some bad tournaments? Yeah, but not very many because you know, one, I'm prepared. One player that I know you do admire because I follow you on Twitter is you really admire Tom Brady. And, oh, and, absolutely. And Tom Brady told me in my podcast with him that he just loves it when he can come from behind, which is obvious. I mean, sure. he does it so well. Did you prefer playing with a lead or did you like uh, coming from behind? What, what? Um, I was never what I thought a great leader, uh, although I, I think I led in 12 majors and I won 10 of the 12 that I was leading in going into the last round. Uh, but I didn't mind being right even or a shot behind going into the last round. Because then I knew that I really had to work to go forward rather than trying to protect something. Did your mindset change if you were it ahead did. versus behind? I, Talk I, about the difference. In the I, hated, I hated that mindset that I, that, I was, that, I, that I felt like I was ahead and I had to protect it. I mean, Tiger Woods has had an unbelievable mindset. When Tiger gets ahead, he not only wins by four, six, eight, ten, he just he, he, he keeps on going. I have, I have great admiration for the way he finishes golf tournaments. And I, I, I didn't do that well, although I, I, went, although I won you know, fair number of tournaments by six, eight, seven, nine, yeah. nine shots, that kind of stuff. But that was not my normal mode. My normal mode is, is I didn't really care by, about how many I won by. I wanted to just win yeah. and put myself in that position. Now, you know, I always took a philosophy. I think it's a little bit of the previous question you asked, a little bit of a little philosophy, is that all you can do is do your best. And if you prepare properly and give it your best effort, I mean, there's 144 guys usually playing in that field. If you get beat, somebody just played better. And you shouldn't, you should never be embarrassed or ashamed or anything else. As long as you've given it your best effort, a lot of times there's somebody who does better than you did. And so 
Maybe that's the reason why I never was really upset if I did finish second or third, as long as I gave it my best effort. If I didn't give it my best effort, like I talked about Oklahoma City, yeah. I didn't. Then I was mad at myself. Yeah. But I never, I, I never recall other than that, because I was well past my prime by that time, that I didn't give it my best effort. You know, as good as you are, Jack, you did lose a few times. You know, uh, We all lose a few times. What, what's the best way to handle that, that loss or in business or any adversity? What have you learned about that? Well, you know, I'll give you a little story. I, I, Roy McElroy came to me when he was about 19 years old. And he was out here playing at the Honda tournament. And somebody said, why don't you call Jack and go over and sit down and have lunch with him? And uh, maybe he might have been 20 at the time, 19 or 20. And he said, he said, ask Jack questions. And so Roy came over, we sat down, and he hadn't won in about a year. And he says, I just can't finish. I, have, I really have a hard time finishing. He says, I get, I get so uptight and I get so worked up with it. I said, I can't, I can't, get, I can't get myself finished. And I said, well, Roy, I says, you got to understand who you are and what your ability is, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses. And you've got to understand that, you know, the other fellows out there having the same problems you are. And patience is the biggest virtue you can have. And, you know, you need to go out and, 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 and you know, and, and, and go out and play and just be patient with what you're doing. And, you know, if, if you're being patient, as good a player as you are, and all of a sudden you're going to knock in a putt that's 10 or 12 feet, and then you might knock another 15 foot, all of a sudden you shoot that 32 or 3 the last time, and you're going to win the golf tournament. And, but if you're going out and pressing yourself and pressing and pressing, I think that you sometimes play beyond what your real ability is at that time. So about three weeks later, Roy went to uh, uh, Charlotte, and uh, uh, he shot 63 the last round. And... Uh, you know, I, I, so I dropped him a note and I said, I said, well, that was a pretty good rally. I says, I says, I told you to have patience, but that was ridiculous. <laughs> so, so anyway, he, he did that. And then he came back and about a year later, he, I think probably the next year he was leading the masters and he shot like 80 the last round. Mm -hmm. And I saw him a couple of weeks after that. And uh, I, I went to him, I said, Rory, I said, okay. I says, now you lost the tournament. Do you know why you lost it? Did you learn anything? He says, I think so. He says, I think I learned why I lost and why I did. I says, well, put that in your bonnet and think about it and think how not to put yourself in that position. And so that, then two or, two or three weeks later, he went to the U.S. Open, won by what, eight or nine shots right. in, in Washington. So then I, wrote, then I dropped him a note right after that. I said, congratulations, that was pretty good there. That's a pretty good effort. I said, you said you learned something from Augusta. You obviously did. But more importantly, did you learn something from what you, what you did at Congressional and why you won? So in other words, I think you have to learn why you lose. You have to learn why you win. You have to learn how to do both. And I think business is exactly the same thing. You know, everybody makes mistakes as they're growing up and trying to learn to grow in business. And you, and, and you should learn from those mistakes. But you also, when you do something well, you learn from that too. So Rory learned quite well. He's, a, he's obviously a very accomplished and good player. You know, someone mentioned, he said, you know, if you ever get a chance to talk to Jack Nicholas, ask him why when he played, he, he had three pennies in his pocket. What's the, what's the thinking well, behind that? Well, it's kind of funny. When I was young, I mean, invariably, I would go to a golf course. I'd go play, the, get to the first green, and somebody, oh, hey, I don't have a ball marker. He says, can I borrow one? So I said, if I had three pennies in my pocket, I always said, give a guy a penny on the first green. And that left me with two. And if I happened to lose one, I always had one left to mark my ball. That's how I got three pennies. Of all the recognition you've received, looking back, what would mean the most to you and why? I'm going to say, as it relates to the game of golf, probably the one that surprised me the most 
and one that was really a really nice recognition. In 2000, they had the uh, uh, Athletes of the Century for a Sports Illustrated's Banquet. And I received the, the male, individual male athlete of the 20th century. I'm sitting there, I said, I'm there with Muhammad Ali and Wayne Gretzky and, and, and Bill Russell and all these athletes. And I received that. I'm sitting there saying, wow, that's pretty good. And, uh, you know, that, from that standpoint, and then from, a, from a, another standpoint, I mean, you, you, I received, I, you know, I received the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom from uh, uh, President Bush and received the, the, the Congressional Gold Medal and, uh, and then I got, they received the Lincoln Award this past year. And to be honored by your country, you know, that's pretty special. Yeah, that is special. And it's very special. And, 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 I, and I, was, I was very honored by, by those awards. Uh, you know, here I'm just, I'm just a, a kid that played a sport. And I have to make a couple more putts than somebody else. But it, was, it wasn't for that. And I was very proud of the fact that, that every one of them said there was a way that I, and I really give Barbara much of that credit, for the philanthropy and part of, 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 of the care for others, which is really my wife's, my wife's dealing, who really got me into that, which was really... Uh, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's I been want to absolutely come back fabulous. and talk about that. And, sure. You know, you're known, Jack, and you just displayed it right here for being understated and, and, and humble. But you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated 22 times. You were. You just mentioned some awards you were honored by your country and presidents, you know. How in the world have you managed to stay humble? Seriously. Well, you know, my dad grounded me when I was young. I remember the first time. I was 11 years old, and I hit a shot to the green at the 15th hole at Saturday. And I missed the green, and the 8-iron followed the ball almost to the green. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, go pick your club up. We're going to the clubhouse. He said, you ever do that again? You're never going to play again. I said, really? He said, yep. I did the same thing with my son, Jackie, at, at uh, 1972 at the U.S. Open, and in, in in, we were playing the practice round at Spyglass. He was a pain in the rear going down. The first hole at Spyglass, we played a practice, we just walked right back out and go, went away. He learned from it. I learned from my dad from that. Uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, you learn, uh, you learn how, you know, always told me, uh, he says, you know, you, you may not like getting beat, but always make the guy who beat you feel like you really are happy for him. Yeah. He says, you can go beat your head in the locker later. He says, but put, put your hand out shake his hand, hand firm, look him in the eye and say, well done. And, you know, I think my dad gave me good lessons about sportsmanship and, and how, trying to be humble. But he says, he says you're going you're to win your share. He says, but, but he says, other people, you know, do things in life in there and you, and you should be happy for them when they do that. And if you've prepared yourself properly, worked at it and they beat you, then they deserve a congratulations. So I sort of lived that way. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I think Barbara's been just, you know, a, a tremendous uh, uh, partner to have for, well, 58 and a half years now. Yeah, that's great. And it's, uh, it's pretty special, but it came from my parents. My parents come from mid Midwest, very, you know, not different than where you are. You're K Kentucky, right. we're just, just north of you. And so uh, it's... Uh, very grounded. You know, it's very grounded. You know, you were in, in golf, you, you were captain of the Ryder Cup team and the President's Cup. And, you know, what did you, what did you learn... What would be your key leadership lessons from taking on those kind of roles in golf? Well, um, I captained two Ryder Cups and four President's Cups. And, you know, from playing with other captains, I really felt like 
the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup was a goodwill match. It was not important who won. It was about the game of golf. It was about bringing uh, nations together and celebrating the game of golf. The winning, winning was not important. It, 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 sure, you wanted to win. But so I, way I, I took it is, I says, it's an honor to make your team. It's a, it's a fantastic honor to be there when they raise their flag and play their national anthem. I mean, I, 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 to this day, I don't think I've ever had the national anthem played that I haven't had tears in my eyes. Mm. I don't care what event I'm at, I've always had it. Yeah. I got it right now just thinking about it. <laughs> you do. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And so, you know, it's, uh, that is to be, so, so I always handled the guys in a way that I felt like, you know, you've made the team, guys. I want you to enjoy the week. Tell me who you want to play with. Tell me who you don't want to play with and I won't embarrass you. I'll just get out of the way and let the teams, you know, have at it and have fun. And, and, I'll, and I'll be my role of sort of organizing and, and, what, and what have you. And, you know, I think that served me well because all the guys really wanted to be back to, to, to be captain again. Because they said, you know, because I handled them like, like, like men, not like kids. You know, you talked about your father teaching you sportsmanship earlier on. You know, one of the most famous acts of sportsmanship in the history of any sport was when you conceded a putt with uh, Tony Jacklin, you know, short putt to, to basically have the, the, the overall matches, you know. Did your dad, I'm curious, did your dad, was he alive then? And if he was, did he commend you or compliment you oh, for doing oh, that? Or, oh, yeah. You know, because you were just telling me he, your dad is oh, such sure. a sportsman. And, well, you know, he, what did he think when you well, conceded he, that putt? I, I did that probably because of the way he taught me. Because mm -hmm. I never even thought about it. I just did it. Yeah. I mean, when, when Tony, I always looked at Tony Jackson, who was a good friend. Yeah. And we were coming up the 18th hole. Tony had beat me in the morning and we played again in the afternoon. And, and I had him one down with two holes to play, and that 17th hole at Burkdale is a par five. And I had it at about 15 feet from the hole, and he had it about 80 feet. And so all I had to do, basically, was look like I was going to two-putt, and I'm going to have him, the match is going to be over. He holed the 80-footer, and I missed the 15-footer. So <laughs> now we go to the 18th hole. Uh, and I had him one down, I take that back. And, and, and we go to the 18th hole, I'll leave it. And we walked off the tee, and Tony, and Dr. Tony says, how you doing? He says, well, he said, if you want to know the truth, I'm bloody petrified. <laughs> and I said, well, if it's any consolation to you, I'm exactly the same. And we, as we say, we were friends. We walked down there, and we both hit off the nice shots off the tee. Tony hit it. I had a little closer to the hole than Tony did. Tony ran his putt up probably inside two feet somewhere. And I ran it about five feet by. And I'm sitting there trying to make it to win the matches. I said, oh, my gosh, I had this that downhill slider left to right about four and a half feet, and I knocked it in. And I don't know why I did it, but it just to me, Tony Jacklin was the first hero that Britain had had in, in 40 years. And he was, if he would have ever missed that, but they would have roasted him for the rest of his life. And I don't know why I thought about it. I just said, I'm not going to give Tony the opportunity to miss that. So I reached out, picked his coin up, and handed it to him, and he says, he says, you're going to give me that? I said, yeah. I said, I'm not going to give you the chance to miss it. You're yeah. not going to have that chance. <laughs> and I said, I said, I, said I, I said, I think that's what the matches are all about. You know, that not only, I mean, I didn't think any big deal about it. Yeah. And I've asked every Ryder Cup captain since that time, what would you have done? He says, exactly what you did. It was, yeah. I would hope my player would do that. And so 
you know, I thought it was a good gesture, but what's happened with it, you know, we have the concession golf club over in Sarasota. We've had concession matches that Tony and I have done. Tony and I have been lifetime friends. He, is, he has benefited from it from all over the world from things we've done. So some good came from it. Absolutely. You're obviously extremely competitive, but in a good way. But how did you view your competitors? I mean, you went out, you had some great battles with some all-time legends in golf, whether it's Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Trevino, Watson, Seve. How did you look at your competitors? Well, I never really looked too much at them. I said, there's only, there's only one competitor that, to me, was the toughest one to beat, and that was yourself. The only person I could control was me. Yeah. And so all I could do was, was do that. It didn't make any difference to me whether it was Palmer, Player, Watson, yeah. Trevino, whatever it might be. And... Uh, I would pretty much played my own game and tried to make sure that I did what I was supposed to do. Uh, obviously, if I got down in the stretch and we're playing the stretch, it became a little bit more match play. So you might be a little bit more strategic in how you played. But you know, still, the only person I could control was me. And I got beat sometimes, and I and I won some some of the time. But don't ever beat yourself. Yeah. And sometimes you get beat. But but don't beat yourself. You know, Jack, you, you've met all kinds of leaders from many different vocations. You know, could you name one that really impressed you the most and why? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, you look at leaders, of, uh, you know, I mean, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of presidents of the United States, and uh, all of them are very special in, the, in, their, in their own way. And, uh, uh, you know, I think... You got to know Billy Graham a little bit. I thought Billy Graham was an unbelievable man. Got to know Nelson Mandela a little bit. Mm-hmm. I saw him on half a dozen occasions. And I really, really liked Nelson Mandela. And what when he you look at in. these big leaders like that, what's yeah. the one trait you admire most in them that you see? Their humbleness. Their uh, selflessness. Uh, I mean, it, it was... Uh, I go back to Eisenhower when I first met Ike. Uh, what a what a gentleman! What a nice man! Never got to play with him. He was they were supposed to play. He played an exhibition with Arnold and me, and he got sick. He went, but he went around the cart with us, and uh, but he, he I couldn't play. But I had lunch with him several times and dinner a couple of times, and he just couldn't have been nicer. Uh, then I get to Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was 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 the ultimate gentleman of anybody I've ever met. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good for a Michigan man, for a guy from Ohio State to say that. <laughs> yeah, that, that I wasn't expecting that one. But, the, but Gerald Ford, uh, I remember what a great honor he I mean, I played with him probably 100 rounds of golf. We played as partners at the Crosby Tournament, no, AT&T now. And we had a great time. And, and he, I remember when he called me one day, he said, Jack, this is, this is President Ford. I said, yes, Mr. President. He says, uh, Jack, he says, I'd like to ask you if you would uh, consider being a pallbearer at my funeral. Wow. I said, well, Mr. President, I said, what a great honor. I said, I said, I hope that's not going to be anytime soon. <laughs> but, you know, the president's planned their own funerals and everything ahead of time, yeah. which was really a nice honor. Uh, oh, that's amazing. George H.W. was, there could, could, yeah. never was a nicer man than, than yeah. George, yeah. George, George H.W. I got to know Clinton, and Bill Clinton was a delightful guy. Yeah. And uh, I got to know him, and George W. is, is what a great guy he is. I mean, I remember when 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 he was in the White House when I was uh, uh, President's Cup uh, captains and and he I did a rally for him in Ohio and he said uh, uh, he said as soon as this election's over Jack I'm gonna bring my father down and Gary was with me my son he says hey, we want to play golf he says and Gary you get my dad <laughs> <laughs> and so 
So the, the election was over, and I didn't get a call from him. I went in the White House about, well, about two months later, Gary Player and I went in for a President's Cup thing, and we walked in. I didn't walk through the door at the Oval House. He says, Jack, I owe you an apology. He says, I, he says, I told you I would call you after the election was over, and I didn't call you. He says, I couldn't play golf. He says, I can't, I can't play another round of golf while I'm in the White House until I get those boys home from, from Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. That's I mean, and he didn't. He never played one round of golf in four years in the White House. Wow. And, I mean, he was, he, he was a terrific guy. Good, good. You know, you were known for being maybe this big part of your preparation. You were known for being one of the first to really talk about mental preparation, the fact that you should visualize exactly what you want in every shot. Is it important to carry that kind of mindset over into business? Well, I think if you don't, I think you have to carry it into business. I think, I, I think to me, if I'm if I'm going to go in for a presentation for somebody or something, I got to visualize what I want to do and what I want to happen and where I want it to go and what I'm trying to do with it. I think it's yeah. no different than playing a golf shot. Yeah, I think it's very important. You know, speaking of business, I remember last year when we had dinner uh, together. Uh, you were heading out the next day to go to Malaysia. Uh, to get an update on a course that you were in the process of designing. When did you first get involved in golf course design? Uh, 19, about 65 or 6, I guess it probably was. Pete and I called me one day. Pete and I had played a lot of amateur golf together. And Pete had just started designing golf courses. And he was working on the golf club in Columbus, Ohio. And he said, Jack, so I want you to come out and see my golf course I'm doing out here for Fred Jones. And I says, he saw what, he said, see what you think of it. I said, Fred, I said, Peter, I don't know what he think about golf course design. He says, you know more than you think. He said, come on out with me. So we went out there and first hole was pretty straightforward. I could see that. The second hole went over the top of a hill with a bunker and it was blind. And I said, Pete, what is this? He said, well, it's a takeoff of a hole at Prestwick. I said, okay. I said, well, I don't, I don't see it, you know. And we got to the third hole and the third hole was a round green with four round bunkers uh, equally around the green, equally spaced around the green, and looked like Mickey Mouse in all directions. He said, what do you think? I said, well, I think it looks terrible. What would you do? I, Pete, I don't know what I would do. He said, yes, you do. What would you do? What would look good? And there was a little stream there. I said, I said, well, I think I'd come down to the front left of that green. I'd put a little bunker in there. And I said, I'd get the green to shape a little bit more to that. And I'd maybe keep that one bunker in the back right and the front left and get rid of the one in the back left. Well, anyway, he did it. And he said, he said, uh, how about consulting with me on some golf courses? He said, would you do that? I'd, Pete, I'd be an honor. I'd love to do that. I said, that was, I, 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 enjoy, I enjoyed this day today. And so nothing happened for a couple of years. And, and I got a call from Charles Fra Fraser through Mark McCormick that Charles was interested in doing a golf course in, in, in Hilton Head. And he wanted to have somebody uh, with a name to be able to do a golf course. And Mark told him, he says, well, the Jack, Jack is wants to get involved in it. And so I met with Charles Fraser and he says, Jack, I'd like to have you do this golf course for me. It was Harbor Town, and uh, I said, I said, Charles, I don't have a clue how to do a golf course, but I said, I've been asked to consult with a guy, a young guy named Pete Dice. Has never heard of him. Of course, Pete, nobody heard of Pete at this time. Pete was just starting, and so he said, uh, Well, I said, okay. So we did a deal with with, with, with Pete. I think I think we charged him forty thousand dollars to do the golf course, and by the time we finished, I made twenty three visits in there. Uh, Pete took the $40,000 fee and put it back in the golf course, plus more. And about two-thirds of the golf course, Charles came to us. He says, you know, he says, I just contracted with the PGA Tour to uh, uh, do a tournament called the Heritage Golf Classic. He said, we're going to have a tournament here in November. This was probably in June. I said, what? So we had just had this little 6,600-yard 6, golf course. 
Well, anyway, we played around with it and got it there, and it's been a main staple of the tour ever since. And so then the Royal Canadian Golf Association contacted me. They wanted me to do a golf course for them for their permanent home in Glen Abbey. And so Glen Abbey was my first golf course. I, I opened that in 1976. We opened up Harbortown in 1969. So I had about seven years of apprenticeship and then started doing it myself. Well, you've got, you know, you're acclaimed for, you've been Architect of the Year by Golf Digest. You've obviously done a phenomenal job. What do you think are, are the big keys to, to the golf course design, if you could simplify it? Well, there's nothing really new. It's really how do you apply it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go back and look at golf courses that are 200 years old and you're going to find something there that you like, and you might apply it in a, in a way to the land that you're looking at. But I'm going to go back and sort of tell you a story. A long time ago, I was doing an outing, and uh, I won't tell you where it is because I, I don't want to say anything about the golf course. But it was an outing, and we had about 10 pros were there. And for some reason, I don't know why I didn't play. I did a clinic in the morning, and 10 pros went out and played, and they played with 10 foursomes or fivesomes. Now, the golf course was in magnificent condition, the clubhouse was gorgeous. It had accommodations in the clubhouse. It sat on top of a hill. There was these big, beautiful trees, beautiful lakes out there. The golfers came in, and every amateur said, Matt Men be the best golf course I've ever played. That was the best day I've ever had on a golf course. It was just fantastic. All 10 pros walked in and said, that may be the worst golf course I've ever seen. Well, what did that mean to me? Well, it meant to me that the average golfer really is not too concerned about the golf course itself but they're concerned about their experience, their time with their friends, the aesthetics, uh, the enjoyment they have, and that had all of that. The pros are interested in the quality of the golf shot, uh, the the challenge, the the fairness, and those things. So my philosophy really became after that, I want to do a golf course as pretty and aesthetically pleasing as I possibly can and put good golf shots in it. You know, I want to thank you for the great job you did, by the way, uh, in, in designing Valhalla in, in, in Louisville, which has become a site for major yeah. championships and, and the Ryder Cup. Nice golf course. And, and I know you work closely with the late uh, Dwight, game Dwight Game on that. You know, what was your vision for that that course, which has become so celebrated? Well, we we're out in the golf course, and I was out there with Dwight and his boys. Uh, we're walking, walking the area that became the front nine, and Dwight says, he says, you know, Jack, he says, I'd like to have a golf course here that could house the, uh, the PGA Championship. And I said, okay, is that, that's what, that would be your goal. And he says, absolutely, that's what I want. I said, okay. I said, that's what I'll design for you. So we designed the golf course and we had the PGA Championship. And then, of course, he, then he sold the facility to the PGA. And then they've had, yeah. they've had Ryder Cups and PGAs, PGA Seeders there. And it's done a lot for Louisville. It's brought a lot well, of great attention think, to Louisville. And it's a, it, I think it's a nice golf it. course. And Louisville has supported very, very well. Yeah, You've also done, I think, over 300 courses around the world. You know, That's right. What do you think is really driving the, the popularity of, of golf? Well, you know, I think the game of golf is a game that everybody can play. It's a game that uh, women can play with children, and they can play with old men, and they can play with old ladies or, or young, whatever it might be. They can all, everybody can play together. You know, and 80% of what you've developed has been outside of the United States. Oh, a lot can you of, explain well, that? Or well, I think because of the new courses. When I played golf, I tried to play as much around the world as I could. I mean, not many people know that, but I won six Australian Opens. So I had to go to Australia quite a bit because Gary Player won seven of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to be down there for a lot of tournaments. But anyway, uh, they, yeah, played around the world. And so when we started designing, 
I wanted to be part of what happened in the world. When apartheid got uh, abolished in South Africa, I wanted to be part of the new new South Africa. So I probably did six or seven golf courses or maybe eight, I don't know, mm. in South Africa. Uh, when, the, when the Iron Curtain went down, I wanted to be part of what's going on over there. Uh, I've done uh, three golf courses in Moscow. Is that right? Uh, when China sort of sort of opened up, well, I probably got 20 to 25 golf courses open in China. Uh, you know, I wanted to be part of what happened in the world. And everywhere you go in the world, people love, for some reason, love to play the game of golf because it's a game yeah. for all ages. And, and the popularity of it is uh, uh, you play it all your life. And, and, it's, uh, and it's something that uh, uh, particularly people outside the United States, because the United States is a fairly mature game. Mm -hmm. I think the Olympics has had a lot to do with it, too. I think the Olympics, uh, the, the, you know, Olympics didn't really affect the United States or Great Britain or maybe Japan because they're mature golf countries. But countries like China, Russia, Brazil, where they had the last Olympics, uh, India, places where there's not that much golf, those countries all want to be part of Olympic. Winning an Olympic gold medal is a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think a lot of that popularity happens through, through what's happened with the Olympics. You know, your, your business and your marketing deals go way beyond designing the, the golf courses. You've had apparel, golf clubs, golf academies, lemonade, and even your own ice cream, as I understand it. Uh, do you have any principles that you've used, Jack, to, to, to help you decide what you want to invest your time and money and energy in? Credibility. That's the way I look at it. If it's a credible thing and it can contribute to society and it's something that... Uh, uh, I should be involved with that I could that, that people would enjoy and be part of, then that's mm. what I do. There was, I mean, to me, to be involved in hairspray doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But I mean, to me, I love ice cream. So, you know, that to me was that was that was one of my most fun. I gained I gained 15 pounds just you know, <laughs> learning, learning, learning about our ice cream. I follow you on Twitter and I understand you're the head of R&D. Oh, head, head, I was head of R&D on that. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Sounds uh, like a love interest, Jack. I mean, our wine, our wine that we've had through the Trelato family out in Napa, uh, I really, I don't drink that much wine. I mean, yeah. I drink a couple of glasses of wine a year. But I think that was part of our brand. It was something that, you know, you're at clubs and so forth and so on and people, people drink a lot of wine. And I think it's, it's a credible thing to have be part of what we have as part of our brand. So those are things, if I felt like it's something that makes good sense for me and, 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 and can contribute to society, then I should be probably involved with it. Great. You know, I, I read where you once said the, the most you've learned about the business world has come through tough experience. Uh, can you share a, a story about one of those experiences well, that uh, you learned from it? Some of the dumb things that I've done through my lifetime, which are, uh, and, you know, at the time I thought they were right. I remember early on in my career, Dave Thomas, who started Wendy's in Columbus, Ohio, yeah. came to me and wanted me to be part of what he was doing. And I said, David, you know, you're a good friend. I love you. But I said, I really don't want to be a hamburger salesman. Well, I just, I just lost about $100 million or $200 million by not doing that. <laughs> Maybe more than that. But anyway, that was what I turned down. And uh, uh, Wendy's obviously turned out to be very, yeah. very successful. I went along and uh, then I had a, one was uh, NetJets, Rich Santulli. Rich Santulli came to me and he said, Jack, he says, I, I want you to be part of NetJets. And so I was 25% owner of NetJets. And Rich was in his early years, just couldn't make the thing happen. It was really losing, losing a lot of money. And my, my people in my, my office said, Jack, 
You don't want to be part of a losing situation. He says, let's try to see if we can buy our way out of this thing. Well, Rich owed me some money, and I just traded money for Rich. Well, anyway, Rich sold you know, to Warren Buffett for about $800 million. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some mistakes that I made. Plus, I turned down, I turned down Wayne Huizinga, and I turned down Hugh Culverhouse, both of them for the Dolphins and Tampa Bay to be part of their teams and so forth. Those would have been pretty good investments, too. Yeah. They all both, they, both of them came to me, and I'd been, I, I, I really, at one time, thought I had a group that were buying the Dolphins, and it fell through, and Wayne bought, bought it. And then the same thing with Hugh Culverhouse. I had a group that was trying to buy you know, the Tampa new franchise, and Hugh got that, that franchise. And they both came to me and offered me a percentage of the team for nothing and a percent for, you know, for, for the cost. So I would have gotten a pretty good chunk of each one of those. Now, those are my infinite wisdoms. I don't really have any of the real good stories. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every leader I talk to has a favorite failure success. Oh, story. those are all failures. Yeah, <laughs> but, they, but they were all all great all great companies, and I and I and I'm, and I'm proud of all the guys and how they took it forward. I, but I should have been part of all of all four of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's possible to have a bigger boat. You know, <laughs> I don't know. The boat's a nice boat. <laughs> what have you learned about running a business? I mean, if you had to, like, what would be your top three principles for running a well, business? I don't you, know. You run a hell of a business. Well, I don't really run it myself. I, I, I think that the basic principle that I had is that when I when I really had controlled my company, uh, it was uh, is to be smart enough to know what you can do and what you can't do. And if you're smart enough to know what you can't do, then find somebody who can do what you can't do. And so I had good people. I've always had good people uh, working for me. If I always had good loyal people, most people work for me work for 25, 30 years or more. Uh, they've all uh, uh, grown with it. I, I always try to, I've tried to advance them. In, in golf course design, I've got probably 24 or five young guys that have been that are members of the American Society of Golf Course Architects that started with me. A silly little thing is right here in my own yard. I used to, uh, don't do it now because I don't do that much of it, but I used to grow the grasses and all the plants and everything that we would do on a golf course. And I test, and I, I, I started at 14 head golf group pretends that started in my yard out of college. <laughs> and so, you know, I've always, I've always loved mentoring young people to bring them along. And, and, and those, some, some of them will make it, some of them won't. Uh, but, and, and also, you know, I, I sold part of my business to uh, Immigrant Bank, Howard Milstein, about, about 12 years ago. And uh, it, was, it was at a point in time where uh, I felt like uh, I needed somebody to help me grow the business beyond where I could grow it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I could do that, so uh, I sold 49% of the business yeah. to Howard. And, uh, uh, you know, it, but, it's, it's all, but it's given me the opportunity to sort of semi-retire. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I didn't want to make my kids wealthy, but I also wanted to give him an opportunity to, for a start in life rather than waiting until I kick the bucket. You know, I know your, your sons and sons-in-laws have been involved in your business yep. to a certain extent. What are some of the joys and challenges of, uh, that come with running a, a somewhat family company? And, and what advice do you have to offer with, to people who get their family involved in the business? Well, I think there's nothing better than working with your family. And I mean, to me, I'm, I, I, I didn't really get into, into, into business to try to maximize what I could make out of the business. Sure, I want to be profitable, want to make a living and do things. Everybody wants to do that. They want to be successful. But to have the opportunity to work with my son, Jack, who runs the design part of the business, we've worked on probably 50, 60 golf courses together. 
what a great thrill. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can still continue to do that. I've seen my son Gary, who, is, who really is, who, who took a little bit of what I gave, it become very entrepreneurial. Gary's bought parts of, of, of five or six different companies that he's been very successful with. And Gary's, Gary's smart, and, he, and, has, and, to, and to work with Gary and be part of it, and he's included his dad in his businesses, yeah. which is kind of neat. And my son Michael has got a real estate brokerage firm, which he's had, and, and, and I'm part of that. So we work to work together. I mean, all kinds of things. Steve is, uh, uh, Steve has got a variety of things that he does, and I've been involved with those. And one of them, one of them started was tournament management. And Steve's still involved in He runs the Memorial Tournament, his, his company. So this has mainly been a joyful experience for you. Absolutely. And, it's been, and, been an experience. Because you, know, you, you, you read a lot about and learn. You know, a lot of times families yeah. have, you know, have you done anything special to, to bring it together? Or just was it the closest of he, your family I, unit? No, I, I think that what, what is kind of neat about our family is our kids, I got five kids and 22 grandkids, and I think they all like still come home. <laughs> and you know, a lot of families split up, and I think all my all my kids, uh, they, they 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 all like their siblings. They uh, they all get along. They spend time together. They go to they go to parties together. They go to dinner together. They do things yeah. together. And I think that's Barbara, mm -hmm. and 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 I, I guess me to a certain degree that they they enjoy being with their parents, yeah. and still at this age, and they still they're out they're now taking care of us, you know, which is sort of helping us through what we do in life. And that's really kind of nice. They, that's they, awesome. I, I think, I mean, I, I am so proud of them. And and the grandkids have come along, and none of them are married yet. And we got one that's going to be 29 here and next week. And so I got to get these kids. We don't have any great-grandchildren. <laughs> we got to get some great-grandchildren. <laughs> it'll happen. It'll but, happen. But, but anyway, it'll happen. But, uh, you know, it's uh, I have zero problem with any of the 22 grandkids. We've great. never had a problem with, with drugs or anything else. And it's just... You know, we haven't had any of those problems. They've all, yeah. all been good kids. They've all gone to college. They've all, um, you know, a lot of them have played sports. They all, they all do things, and, and they've all uh, been able to, to make their way in life. Jack, you, you know, we've talked about golf. We've talked about business. You know, the other thing that you have really gotten focused on, and you're doing it in partnership with Barbara, is your, your philanthropy. And I know you're very passionate about pediatric care. Why is that the, your real focus well, area? I think How does this fit into your life now? And what's it doing for you? Well, it started back uh, 1966. Nan was uh, not quite a year old. And she started choking. And, we, and by the time we get her to the doctor, she was fine. This happened about a half a dozen times. We said, you know, there's something, there's something bothering this child. And this happened all within a period of a couple of weeks. And so we finally took her down to Columbus Children's Hospital, which is now Nationwide Children's Hospital. And they found a shadow in her windpipe. And it turned out to be a, a, a blue crayon. And then they, they and I, I don't understand why, but they didn't have any a pediatric bronchoscopes. In the time. they went down with an adult bronchoscope and a 10-month-old baby. And of course, it broke up the crayon, it dropped in her lung. She went, got into pneumonia. And, and she was touch and go for about, about a week. And she recovered from it. And uh, Barbara and I, at that time, we said, you know, if, there's, if we ever have an opportunity to help others, we want it to be children. Because at Columbus Children's Hospital, we felt saved our daughter's life. And so uh, from day one, the Memorial Tournament has benefited that hospital. Mm -hmm. And we've been the, the, the main beneficiary from the Honda Tournament. And of course, we do quite a few other events now. And we've been very fortunate. We've raised all, very close to $100 million in the last 14 years. 
we, we got ourselves in a position through the game of golf. I mean, if I'd have made a few less putts, nobody would have heard of me. So that would never have happened. But I was fortunate enough to make a few putts. And it, it put me in a position to be able to help others. As a matter of fact, I, I'm sure you realize that you know, the PGA Tour every year gives more to charity than all other sports combined. Yeah. And the kids today actually get it. Most of these young guys have been very philanthropic at a very young age. A lot of them have their own foundations. A lot of them have supported our foundation. We've supported some of their foundations. They're great kids. I know you have a lot of stars like Justin Thomas and Ricky Fowler. They come over, they, get, they come to this house, and they get your advice. What do you tell them? Basically, I tell them how I, how I saw the golf course. And I, I basically say to them, I said, you know, and one of the big things about Augusta, you never get hurt in the center of the green at Augusta. Uh, a lot of golf courses, you play the center of the green, and you, and you might be putting down the slope off of the golf ball going away. But Augusta, you don't have that. Only the second hole where you, the green is sort of divided that you have a bit of a problem. But the rest of the greens, you put the ball in the center of the green, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And I said, you know, let's put the ball in the center of the green and try to eliminate the four, five or six tough shots on the golf course by not putting yourself in, in harm's way. And then the rest of the golf course, you can go not very hard. Just go ahead and put the ball somewhere in there where you can go ahead and make it. Obviously, the greens are difficult to find. <laughs> but for the middle of the greens, they're not that difficult to find. Right. And that's, all. and that's basically what I tell them. Yeah, well, they, they have to love that. You know, Jack, you've been so generous with your time, and I can sit here and listen to you forever. I've got even more questions, but I'd like to ask you this last question here. Give us the, you know, three bits of advice to aspiring leaders. I mean, you know, if you look back, you know, you've done it, you've done it all. You know, golf, business, philanthropy. What would be the three biggest bits of advice you could give to aspiring leaders? Well, I think, first of all, whatever you do, do it because you want to do it. Don't be, do it because you were pushed into it by somebody. It's got to be something you want to do. Uh, and if you want to do it, you know, give, give all you've got to it. Because I think you're not going to be successful if you don't. You've got to enjoy it. You've got to give it all. And, and you've got to be prepared you know, prepare yourself for what you're doing. So uh, if you're, if you're, if you got to like it, you got to work at it and you got to be prepared. Yeah, that's if, great. You can, if you can do that, I think you can probably be pretty successful no matter what you do. You know, one last thing, I just, speaking of success, you're also, believe it or not, everybody's listening. He's, he's like a world-class angler, great fisherman. <laughs> do you have one true fishing story you could share with us? It was in Australia, for the Australian Open 1978. And I went down and I went with, I took a couple of friends of mine from Ohio with me. We went out on, on the reef fish, fishing for black marlin. And we fished a couple of days and, and uh, you know, a few fish were caught, maybe 600 pounds, 800 pounds, big fish. We released them all and so forth and so on. And on Saturday, which is probably our third or fourth day, uh, I hooked into this fish at, at uh, quarter of five in the afternoon. And... Uh, the fish started jumping, and, and Jerry Pate had, had it all on film. And the fish happened to be, they said, you, and, and they call it a, a grander is what they're talking about, well, a thousand-pound fish. And they said, he's got a monster monster on it. <laughs> and so I'm finding this fish, and it had about 10 jumps in the first hour, which we got all on film. And I fought this fish for six hours and 25 minutes. <laughs> 
And finally, at 10 minutes after 11 at night, I landed the fish. And, they, and all the radios all down the coast were on, on this on this honest. They said, get us some measurements, get us some measurements. So we got the measurements. says, you've definitely got the Australian record, probably the world record. Can you get it weighed? We're 100 miles offshore <laughs> in the middle of the night. We got all these reefs across we couldn't get across. So uh, we, we kept the fish as wet as we could keep it. Uh, but of course, then the next morning it came along where we could go over the reefs. The sun's baking on this fish. When we finally weighed it, the fish was uh, 15 and a half feet long, seven foot girth, 29 and a half inches at the base of the tail. That means it carries that weight all the way up through the fish. And he weighed 13.58. Oh, God. Now, that fish probably weighed over 1,500 pounds when he was caught, but we couldn't get him weighed. So I lost the world record. And still today, 41 years later, it still measures larger than, than the world record fish or any other fish in black marlin that's ever been caught. They have a replica of that fish. Johnny Morse did a replica of that fish at uh, Top of the Rock in, in, in Missouri. Wow. And he's got it in the bar there as a replica of my fish. Wow, that's amazing. You know, Jack, I say this with all humility. You know, I mean, I'm humbled just to be in this room with you. And uh, you are one great man. And you have a great family and a great story. And you're a great American. So... Thank you so much for taking the time to share share your insights. I really appreciate it. Okay. I know this went a lot longer than what oh, you Oh, I don't care about that, David. I, it's a it's a pleasure to, and I'm very flattered that you've asked me to do this and be part of it. I'm glad to be part of your podcast, and I hope that uh, hope that you're successful and continue to, to enjoy what you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, that was such an honor just to sit and talk with Jack Nicholas and doing it in his home and walk around and see all of his memorabilia. I got to tell you, this guy is a national treasure. And if you play golf, you know being consistent is really stinking hard. But Jack is the absolute gold standard for excellence time and time again. And when I asked him why, Jack pointed to two things his preparation, and his ability to learn from both his failures and successes. And you know, it's kind of funny. We leaders talk a lot about celebrating our wins and learning from our failures, but sometimes we just plain forget to actually look at the wins and ask why it all worked. So this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to think about a recent big win you've had in your life as a leader. Now, I hope you've already taken the time to celebrate it. That's important, but take some time to learn from it too. Why did it work? What specific actions and people and processes contributed to your success? Just like Jack told Rory, we can learn as much from our victories as we can from our losses. Start applying that principle, and I know that you'll become a better leader. Heck, you'll probably be a better golfer too. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders learn as much from success as they learn from failure. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 